All right. Welcome to Gather. We're glad to have you guys here. Are you excited for tonight? I think you're more excited than that. You know, uh, it's been a little while since we've done a dating series, but uh, I'm excited that we're doing one. It's a conversation that we, um, man, we we hear this conversation all the time. And, And so as we prepare for this series, um, I, you know, it's been a little while since I've been in the dating world, and the dating world has changed a bit since the last time I was actively dating. And so I want to make sure that this old guy is not too far out of touch with what's happening in your world. So what I did was uh, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, we got a group of gentlemen together, and we did a little focus group. And I asked them a whole bunch of questions. I mean a whole bunch of questions. And then the next week, We got a little focus group of some of you ladies in the room and said, all right, let's ask you the exact same questions and see how they match up. Now, oh, to be a fly on the wall, right? To listen to what the opposite sex was saying about you and your whole group of you, right? Well, here's the the first question I asked, both groups. I said, in one or two words, would you please describe to me the dating culture currently in 2023? Here's what was said. This is the exact order that they were given in, both from the guys and from the gals. Misleading, unclear, deceptive, unenjoyable, superficial, unending, time-consuming, uncertain, distracting, foundationless, messy, flaky, convoluted, non-committal, confusing, pressure-packed, judgmental, anxious, and shallow. Why in the world, why do we want to date, right? Shallow, anxious, flaky, never-ending, unenjoyable. And so both weeks, When I asked that question, it was just a flood of negativity. And so I posed the question, then why in the world would you ever want to date? What's the positive side? Here's what they said. Companionship, love, faithfulness, connection, intimacy, support, fun, deep friendship, exciting, feels good to be wanted, Hopeful, challenging, it's an opportunity to grow. It's a, there's a sense of service, thoughtful, and it's a learning opportunity. Okay, now we're, now we're getting somewhere. Maybe, just maybe, it's also, it just feels really good to be liked. And it feels really good to have someone that you can depend on that brings security to your situation. Because that's what we're in, right? We're in a situation, when, when, we're, when we're single and we're dating or we're wanting to date, or maybe even if you are dating, there's just all these feelings and worries and fears that bubble up inside of us. We talk about them. They're talked at us by relatives and parents and all that kind of stuff. But here's why we're doing this series. One, because it is officially cuffing season, right? It is that time of year. It is darker now. It is getting colder, so we're all thinking, what is the next couple of months gonna look like? It's gonna be cold, I'm gonna be alone. You know, is there anybody, anybody that uh, looks like they might be alone as well? So we thought this would be a perfect time to touch on this topic of dating because, yeah, there's a lot of baggage, but there's also a lot of great things about this season of life. So as we get into this series, I just wanna share with you my heart of, of, of how, what I'm thinking about and why I wanna do this kind of a series um, here at the gathering. And in general, it's this, to give you principles from God's word that will both challenge you, but also help you as you navigate the world of dating. Because this is probably one of the most reoccurring, consistent conversations that I have with young adults, that our team and our staff have with young adults revolves around the good, the bad, and the ugly of dating. And so I always come into a series like this with a little trepidation, to be honest with you, because I know that this topic can bring up a lot of wounds 
from past experience. It can bring up a lot of fears. It can bring up a lot of confusion for people that don't know where they're at in this. Where should I be? What should I be thinking? And so what I want to do is give you principles that God's word tells us and then apply it to the world of relationships. Because surprise, the Bible does not use the word dating. Um, It's not in there. This is a modern day concept. And so we're going to take principles and we're going to find and apply them. Because here's the deal. My greatest desire for you as the young adult pastor here at Crossings is not that you get married. That is not my number one concern for you. My number one desire and concern for you is that you would have a deep, abiding, content, and joy-filled relationship with God. That is my number one concern. But I also know that this is also a huge concern and felt need of the world. And so whether you are single, dating, engaged, or maybe you're married, I want you to find a deep joy and contentment in your relationship with Christ first and foremost. Because the reality is to be married well, you need to date well. And to date well, what we're going to do is we're gonna dig deep into God's well of wisdom and discernment and truth. So that when you do choose or get asked out, or you ask somebody out, that you're doing it with God's wisdom, not just the wisdom of the internet or your best friends, but it's actually rooted in God's word who actually wrote that for us because he loves and cares for you. So let me pray for us, and then we're gonna get into tonight. God, I just wanna thank you for uh, your word, that, that it, it guides us and leads us um, from, from the biggest things in life, eternal things, down to the very things of what we should think and what we should believe and what we should do with our time and how we should treat one another. So Holy Spirit, as we talk about this tonight, as we talk about dating for the next month, Lord, would you guide and lead us to the truths of your word that will give us a, a, a view of dating that is not just about us, but it is about honoring you and honoring the one we are with. In your son's name, amen. So like I said, this is the most consistent conversation that we find ourselves in in our young adult ministry. But here's the deal. What I've realized as I've met with young adults for the last decade plus is that we need to think differently about dating and marriage before we actually talk about the how-tos of dating and marriage. And so tonight, we're really gonna think about this right here. What do we think Because here's the truth. What we believe will lead to our behavior. What we believe about dating, what we believe about marriage, and for that matter, what we believe about singleness will then lead us in how we behave in our singleness while we're dating and in marriage. And what I've seen over the years is a couple things that I wanna kick off with tonight is that we have bought into two cultural narratives or lies that I believe that have unknowingly turned into a subconscious idol worship. There's two narratives that are pervasive in our culture. Here's the first narrative. It's the idolization of individual rights, happiness, and fulfillment. That everything in your life is about you and everything that is around you is actually about you and the relationships you are in are there for your fulfillment and your happiness. You look around our world, this is not a a stretch. We can see this all over. Do they meet your needs? Do they meet your criteria? Because marriage is good as long as it doesn't impede on your individual needs, right? Like think about this, this is why we come up with lists of who we want to date and marry. This is why we have a type of person we want to date or marry, because ultimately, it's about fulfilling what I think I need to be happy. And so they need to have this, 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 and this, so that I am happy and fulfilled in our relationship. You see, when we believe and and actually idolize our individual rights and happiness and fulfillment, it becomes all about me. And then dating and marriage is just a means to an end, and the end is our happiness. Therefore, as soon as we become unhappy, what? We're done. 
So the first cultural narrative that sets us up for failure in dating is the idolization of individual rights, happiness, and fulfillment. The second one is the idolization of family. That you are nothing until you are a family, until you're married, you are not a full person. Like, get ready, guys. Thanksgiving's coming up in a couple weeks, right? We're gonna go home. We're gonna see grandma. And what is she gonna ask you? So are you dating anyone? And then Christmas and your aunt and uncle are gonna come over and they're gonna say stuff like, hey, how come a handsome guy like you hasn't settled down yet? And what's the underlying tone there? What's wrong with you? Like, why, what, what is it about you that no one can actually connect with and, and commit to, right? Isn't that the underlying feeling that we have in our singleness? Is, is one narrative says it's all about you, it's all about me, and the other narrative leads us to a place that says, what's wrong with me? And so then, when we put these two narratives together as what we believe underneath the surface, then it absolutely makes sense that when we say, what's the dating culture like? It's anxious, flaky, miserable, unending. It's ugh. Why? Because we, I think we know deep down that the goal is not my personal fulfillment. And then we know deep down that, you know what, maybe... Maybe what they're saying about me is right. Like we start to believe that maybe there is something wrong with me. And so the cultural narratives that are out there, whether it's from our family or our friends or the movies we watch or the books we read, is putting a, a narrative into your mind and to my mind that we need to first recognize so that we can then turn a corner and go a different direction. Because both of those narratives are a lie. One creates a false idea that it's all about me. The other creates an insecurity of what is wrong with me. So no wonder we're at where we're at. You see, in a very real sense, our cultural narrative idols around dating and marriage turn our significant others, eventually your spouse, into a functional savior that has saved you from the cancer of singleness. And what ends up happening is, is we put a pressure and a responsibility on a human being that they cannot possibly hold. And then we wonder, well, I'm not happy. They haven't saved me from because I'm still lonely. Did you know you can be married and lonely? You can. Did you know you can be married or engaged and feel betrayed or unseen or not included? Believe me, I've got friends. I've watched their marriage and it's happened. There's been times in my marriage where I'm like, I feel a little alone. We won't ask Taylor how she's felt, but <laughs> marriage is not our savior. Our single years are not cancer that needs to be cured. This is why I believe that, it, it, that so much of the anxiety around dating, somewhere along the way, we've bought into one, of, one or two of these narratives, or maybe both, and we've meshed them together. And because we're living in this soup of, hey, it's all about me, but at the same time, what's wrong with me? Like You, you can feel the anxiety there. Because we do this unintentionally, what ends up happening, and I've seen this, if I've seen anything, this is what I've seen, is that dating from a place of desperation will always be disastrous. And when we listen to these narratives of our culture, it creates in you a desperation that says, I gotta take this into my own hands. I've gotta make, I've gotta do it. Because I gotta prove there's nothing wrong with me. And I've got to make sure that I am happy. And so then we start making compromises and we start doing things and going places and dating people that we know that's not who I should be dating. This is not the, the motivation in which I should be stepping into this relationship. And so if I've learned one thing, desperation and dating do not go together. And so here's the hope. If those are the cultural narratives, Christianity has a completely and opposite and totally different narrative about dating and about marriage. 
Here is the Christian dating. This is Christian dating right here. The purpose of dating is to get married. And when we get married, we give ourselves to one another so that they may be all that Christ wants them to be. You see, the cultural narrative, it's all about you. In Christianity, it's all about them. In culture, it's all about give, 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 take, take, take. Following Christ, we follow in his footsteps who says, I will give myself for you, for your benefit. It actually becomes a relationship that isn't built on self-fulfillment. It's actually built on loving and caring and giving yourself up for the benefit of someone else. So here's the truth. If you're not ready to give up yourself for the benefit of someone else, you should not be dating. If it's all about you, 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 pump the brakes. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus gives this command to his disciples. This is right before he was about to be crucified. He says, love one another as I have loved you. The most simple but most difficult command. Love one another. This is a relationship. But do it. Love them as the way I have loved you. Then we have to ask the question, well, how did Jesus love us? What did he do? He gave himself to you, to us as a people, that we may be redeemed. You see, his love was a self-sacrificial love. And our world would say, oh, no, 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 that's not love. Love is you need to do everything that I want and you need to affirm everything that I am and believe. And if you don't, then you do not love me. Jesus says, no, 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 I will give myself to you. Whether you reject me or love me, I will die on the cross for you. So therefore, go and love as I have loved you. And by the way, when you do that, all of a sudden, your relationships, your friendships, your dating relationships, and your marriages then will point to the fact that you are a Christian. Because you will love and you will date and you will be, be, uh, do marriage in such a different way that people will be like, whoa, whoa, what are they doing? That doesn't look like what I see in the rest of the world. And it'll be because they know you're a believer. So here's the distinctions of both marriage and singleness in Christianity. Christian dating and marriage is a thing of service of one another instead of just self-fulfillment. Christian dating and Christian marriage is, is about service to one another and not just self-fulfillment. A Christian worldview acknowledges that marriage cannot give all the things that you are looking for. And that it's only in Jesus Christ that you will find what you want in a spouse. Someone who will know you, someone who will understand you, someone who will accept you, someone that will give you purpose and fulfillment is found in Jesus, not in a person. The Christian narrative is that giving of ourselves to another instead of taking from someone to fulfill ourselves is the way to go. This, this is how Christ has loved us. He has done Romans 12, 10 perfectly. He has outdone us in showing honor. He has honored us. He has given us the benefit. The other narrative is that Christian singleness is a legitimate, fruitful, and viable way of life. You're not half a person. You're not an incomplete individual. The Bible teaches that just as you are, single, married, engaged, dating, divorced, widowed or widower, you are a complete person in Christ. And so that narrative that you have to be part of a family, someone has to marry you for you to be okay, is not a biblical idea. And so here's what we're gonna talk about tonight. Before we get into the, the how-tos, like we're gonna cover the when should you date, who should you date, how should you, we're gonna cover all of that. But we're gonna start tonight talking about singleness. Because the reality of it is, I would say 99% of you in this room, that's where you are right now. So before we get to the aspiring part of the dating series, let's just talk about the actual situation that we're in. And so tonight, if you want to title this message, it is how to, to not waste your singleness. How to not waste your singleness. Number one, 
way to not waste your singleness is to embrace the goodness of singleness. You know, singleness, like I said before, is not a cancer to be cured, but a gift from God to embrace. And I know, I just heard all the eyes roll into the back of your head. Uh, singleness is a gift. Okay, Andy, I've heard that before. It is not. I want to get rid of it. It's not a gift I asked for. But the Bible would say otherwise. But think about this. The, just the idea, just the word single brings in our culture a negative connotation. Have you ever wondered, maybe you haven't and maybe it's just me, but have you ever wondered why we call this the young adult ministry? and not a singles ministry? Because if you throw a singles ministry up on a piece of paper, you're like, oh, I'm not going there. Can't do that, that that's, where, that's where the people that are unlovable go. You know, like, <laughs> like that's, just, that, that's just the mindset we get. It's just a negative connotation. It's like I, no one wants, it's like the ministry that people are a part of that nobody wants to stay a part of. And what we've done inadvertently in our culture and, and especially in the church is, is we've inadvertently given this message that as a single person, it is negative. You need to get out of it as soon as possible so that you can be a real adult. And I'm telling you, if that's the message you've gotten from somebody in, in the church, I am sorry. Because that is not true. That is not a biblical idea. But too often our default setting towards singleness is negative, that we're missing out. That's where those little phrases from our grandma and our aunt and our uncle just kind of wear on us. It's because they're insinuating that you're missing out, that something's wrong. But to not waste our singleness, we first need to embrace the goodness of singleness. And here's why we cannot demean the idea of being single, by rejecting the goodness of it. It's because first and foremost, we're gonna go all the way to the top, is that Jesus Christ was single. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was never married. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords never had sex. Whoa. That does not compute in our culture. Our culture tells us that actual sexual exploration and pleasure and identity is actually the most valuable thing about you. That's what our culture would tell you. It's not what the Bible says. It's not what Jesus lived. And so if we believe that singleness means that we are incomplete, what we're, what we're then saying because of that is that our Savior is an incomplete Savior. And so we need to change how we think about the word and the idea and the season of singleness. It's not a curse. It is not a cancer. It is actually the life that Jesus lived. Then secondly... The Apostle Paul was single. In 1 Corinthians 7, there's this whole discourse with Paul to the church in Corinth about being single and married. Like it, it, Paul's a really interesting guy when it comes to marriage. In Ephesians 5, he does this eloquent passage about Jesus is, is the groom, right? And, and, the, and the church is his bride and that marriage is a representation of that relationship. But then in 1 Corinthians 7, listen to this. I, I just wonder if Paul was having a day. I don't know if he got broken up with, but he seems a little sour on marriage here. He says this, but I wish everyone were single just like me. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another, singleness or marriage. But if you get married, it is not a sin, thank goodness. And if you, if you a young woman, get married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have trouble. And I am trying to spare you from those problems. What an interesting way to talk about this, Paul. Like, I love, he's like, it's no sin to get married, but man, I wish you were all single like me. He says, it's a gift. Did you catch that in verse seven? What's the gift? One kind or another, meaning that both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. It is not by mistake. Mar <clears throat> excuse me. Marriage and singleness have their ups and downs. Because I'll be the first one to tell you, marriage is not easy. If you want to come talk to me afterward, I can tell you stories of times where I've hurt my, uh, my wife, I've hurt her feelings, I've, I've betrayed her, I've let her down. There's times where she has frustrated the fire out of me. 
Like meshing your life to another person is not easy. But you know what? Singleness is really hard as well. And so it's not an either or, one's good and one's bad. Paul says both are a gift. But what we tend to do when we're single is we compare the, the highs of marriage with the lows of singleness. When we're lonely, when we're single, we say, well, man, if I just had somebody to go home to every night, then everything else would be great. But you know what also happens when you're married? The lows of marriage are compared to the highs of the single life. This is why people have affairs. Because like, man, I'm tied down. The old ball and chain, man, when I was single, oof, I could buy what I want, I could go wherever I want, I could date whoever I want. And so what we end up doing is we compare the worst of one with the, the benefits of the other. Because the truth is this, that being single is hard. And you know what? Marriage is also hard. What we need to do is stop worshiping a false idea that dating and or marriage will fix all of your problems. Paul is saying, listen, stay single. I love you people. Stay single and you, I wanna spare you from all the problems of marriage. Did you know that the, the Greek word there that Paul uses for trouble means trouble? There's, there, there's no language problem here. It means trouble. There'll be difficulty. There's a guy, a pastor, an author named Sam Alberry, who wrote a book called Seven Myths About Singleness. I've got it right here if you want to check it out. It's a great book. Seven Myths About Singleness. It's a really, really good read. And, and I wanted to highlight a couple of things that he said in his book about the goodness of singleness to embrace. The first one is the undivided devotion to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two, just a little bit after Paul talks about, hey, stay single. He says, one of the great benefits of staying single is you can be solely and uni uh, unified to the Lord. You have an undivided heart. You have an undivided life. The married person is divided between the Lord and the things of this world. Now, I'll be honest with you. Marriage is hard. I would not change being married to my wife for anything. But I will tell you, those words are absolutely true. Your life becomes divided. And so one of the great things about being single is that undivided devotion and season with the Lord. You can serve him. You can grow in your knowledge and faithfulness in him. You can go and do things that I cannot do. The next thing that Sam says in his book is the goodness of singleness is the availability that you have, the freedom of time. Now, I get it. Everyone in this room is busy. If I ask you how you're doing, I'm busy. Here's the thing, but when you're single, you get to choose you're busy. You get to choose you're busy. Married people do not get to choose they're busy. Married people with children absolutely don't get to choose they're busy. And so the goodness of being single is that you have you have availability right now in your season of life like you will never have again. You can do with your time what you want. The cool thing for me was, I remember this, looking back on my life and saying, my season of singleness allowed me to work at a summer camp for five years after I graduated college. Like I was a kid for a long time and I got to do what I loved because I was untethered. I finished college, I was like, you know what, I'll be done. That's a college thing to do, but I was really sad because I loved it. Two months before the summer, they called me up and hey, can you come back? I'm like, yes, yes I can. Nine summers of the greatest summers of my life and those summers of, uh, uh, at, at camp were, were like rocket fuel for my faith. And I could not have done that had I been attached. The, other, the, third, the third thing is flexibility an undivided heart, availability of time, and flexibility of life. You can do anything on the turn of a dime. Like literally, tonight after the gathering, someone might be like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? We're flying to so-and-so, you wanna come with? You can say, yeah, I could do that. 
Now, if you do, let me know. But you know who, you know who doesn't get to ask that question? Married guys. Because I'd be like, hey, I, you know what? We got a plan like four or five months out. And it, or if not, it ain't happening. So availability, flexibility, an undivided heart are just, just a, a, a snapshot of the goodness of the season and gift of singleness. I love this quote by Sam in his book. He says this, the gift of singleness is not some special spiritual superpower or capacity to like deal with it. The gift is the state of being married or the state of being single. That is the gift. It is the opportunity to taste the goodness of God and to be the means of that goodness to the lives of other people. I love that. It is an opportunity to taste the goodness of God and to be then the conduit, the means of that goodness to those around you. You see, there's a way to see singleness as a way of experiencing God's goodness and making your singleness become a blessing to those around you. And I think that's what Paul is talking about, is that we can understand and know the goodness of God differently when we're single. And we have the availability and the time and the, undevoted, the undivided heart to then share that with the people around us. You see, now we, we don't have to pretend to like every moment of being single. I'm not saying that. There are pains and difficulties and challenges being single. I get it. But just as it is with marriage, there are also difficulties and challenges. But we don't just blanketly say marriage is a curse because of them. So let us embrace and receive the gift and goodness of singleness as readily as we embrace the goodness of marriage. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, it is a gift one way or the other. I know single people in this ministry that have been single longer than they wanted to be single. But I've also seen those same people invest their lives in other people, in, in, in younger generations in our church for years and years. And the fruit of that faithfulness and serving and loving people is gonna have eternal ramifications. And it is awesome to see. Instead of feeling bad about themselves, they get busy serving the Lord and being a blessing to others because they have the time, the availability, and the flexibility, and the undivided heart to do so. Secondly, how do you not waste your singleness? You pursue healthy community. I would say that in, our, in my conversations that I've had, probably the greatest underlying fear of singleness is that you are, you'll be doomed to isolation for the rest of your life, that you'll be alone. That's the fear that drives a lot of the desperation. We long as human beings, I want you to hear me, we long for intimacy with, with, with another person. But it's, you see, we live in a culture that has hijacked this idea and the term intimacy. And, and our culture has made the word intimacy absolutely, without question, synonymous with sexual intimacy. That that's what intimacy is. Our culture has no concept of intimacy and friendship apart from sexual intimacy. And that's just not true. Intimacy and friendship is a wonderful and good and biblical thing. But our culture has convinced us that intimacy means sexual intimacy. And here's what I mean by that. There's a relationship in the Old Testament, King David. He's got this really good friend named Jonathan. And it says Jonathan loved David. And because our culture cannot wrap their mind around an intimate friendship between two men, the most popular narrative in our culture today is that David and Jonathan were gay. Because you can't have an intimate friendship if it's not sexual. And that's just not true. Some of you in this room probably have an intimate friendship. And it's a wonderful gift. But this idea that intimacy and sex are the same thing is not a biblical idea. It is a secular way of thinking and it is profoundly anti-Christian. You see, Jesus lived in community. The perfect human, 
what did he do with his life? He hung out with 12 of his boys every day. All day, they ate together, they walked together, they did miracles together, they got kicked out of cities together, they did everything together. And in those 12, Jesus had three that were his intimate friends. Like he would pull them aside and and he would show them things about the kingdom of God that the others didn't get to see. So if Jesus needed friendship and he found intimacy in friendship, then you know what we can too. It's that need for community, that need for relationship is not a weakness of humanity. It is how we are wired. We see Paul again. He lived in community wherever he went, from town to town, from church to church. Paul often in his letters says things like, I I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. He talks to them like family. It is not just, hey, you're my employees starting a new location campus of the church. He talks to them as if they are his intimate family. Just look at chapter 16 of Romans. He names 25 friends, men and women, 25. Single Paul rattles off 25 names of faithful friends who have planted churches and done the ministry of the gospel together. King Solomon, the wisest man that has ever lived, wrote extensively about friendship in Proverbs. We were actually just talking about this today during our our preparation for tonight is that maybe every small group that we have should probably do a Proverbs study on friendship and look at at how Proverbs, how King Solomon talks and, and, and lifts up the value of friendship. And then in John 15, Jesus actually defines friendship for us. He says this to his disciples, his boys. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master's business. Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus says, this is friendship. Disclosing it, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what everything God has told me, I have told you. And so that it makes sense when the brother of Jesus, James, in James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another. Be known. Lean into friendship. Intimate friendship. And it says, can, he says, confess your sins. Pray for each other. And the result of that intimate friendship, well, you will start to see healing in your life. Isn't it incredible that healing in our life comes directly through intimate friendship with one another. That's why isolation is the tool of the devil. Of course, of course he would say, oh, you're single, you're gonna be alone forever. Of course he would want us to think that. Because healing is found through confession to God and with one another. And so Jesus defines friendship, it's being known. It's being fully disclosed to someone. Jesus is saying, I've let you in on what's actually going on in my life. I have not held anything back. So here's my question then. We have to ask a question when we read something like this. According to Jesus' definition of friendship, that I have disclosed everything to you. You're not my servants, you're my friends. How many friends do you have? How many friends do you have that fully know you and fully love you? Proverbs tells us that a friend is born for adversity, that there is a friend that is closer than a brother. I think sometimes we go into dating because we're so lonely because we have no friends and we want to be known. And so that's, that, that's the only intimate relationship we can think of because we've convinced ourselves that it's impossible to have intimate friendship outside of a sexual, dating, romantic relationship. We need to redeem and recover a biblical view of friendship and cultivate that in our churches, at the gathering, in our small groups. We need to cultivate and redeem friendship. 
Because the world would say friendship is who you go on vacation with, who you make weekend plans with. Friendship's really just a calendar. That's not the, the picture that, G, that Jesus paints. It's not the picture that Solomon paints in the Proverbs. The Bible teaches over and over that singleness is a viable option for a full, vibrant, and complete life in Christ. You can be a complete human, a complete person, and have a fulfilled, wonderful life single. Jesus did it. Paul did it. You can do it. So don't date out of desperation, thinking that you're somehow missing out. Because here's the truth. If we truly believe that intimacy can only be found in marriage, we will not be healthy people and we will not be a healthy church. And this has huge implications. If we believe that intimacy can only be found in marriage, this has huge implications for those who are single and who will never be married. This has huge implications for those brothers and sisters who are same-sex attracted. This has huge implications for those in the room that one day will be widowed or you'll be a widower and you'll be single again. What's the hope? Isolation and loneliness? The Bible says absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's wonderful news. That's wonderful news. That we can know intimate friendship without it being a romantic relationship. And so to not waste your singleness means to pursue healthy community. Lastly, number three, how to not waste our singleness means keeping your hope on Christ. You see, when Jesus came on the scene in Mark chapter two, he doesn't refer to himself as the Messiah. He doesn't say, hey, uh, the Redeemer has come. He doesn't even call himself savior. In Mark chapter two, he introduces himself as the bridegroom. Because all throughout the Bible, God shows himself not as some faceless power over the universe. From beginning to end, God paints himself as a groom who's making covenant promises with his bride, the church, that one day he will return Revelation 19 to 21 is the, 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 the banquet and the feast of the wedding of the Lamb. That one day, Jesus will return for his bride, you and me, the church, and we will be with him. And so in the midst of our singleness, in the midst of our dating, in the midst of our engagements, and, and maybe someday our marriages. Let's not put our hope on a person because they're not your savior. Jesus says, no, 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 I am your savior. I am the bridegroom and one day I will come back and I will bring my bride and we will be together. That's what Revelation 21 says. I love what Lance said last week. Revelation 21 says, hey, there is a wedding feast waiting for us. That's what heaven is. Did you ever realize that? That heaven is described as a wedding party, not harps on a cloud. What a great trick that Satan has taught us, that heaven's boring and you're gonna get a harp and sit on a cloud for eternity. No, no, no. It's a wedding reception where Jesus says, you are mine there is no more tears, no more pain, no more death. We are together. My people will be with me and I will be their God. You see, Christ is the savior. He is the bridegroom of all of humanity. And so as we are single, let that longing for relationship always be reminding us that one day we were created for a much greater relationship and that one day you will be part as a Christian of the greatest wedding feast you, have, you could ever imagine in Christ. I'm gonna finish tonight with a, one more quote from our friend Sam Alberry. I just think this is a fascinating idea. 
He says this, by the way, Sam's single. He says, our singleness can now be a way of saying to a world that is so utterly confused and crazed when it comes to sex and romance that Jesus is so real and so sufficient and so good, I can have him now and not be married and I have plenty in life. Can we say that? Do we have a relationship with Christ where we can say, come what may, I am content and I am full and satisfied in my relationship with Christ. Our singleness can now be a way of saying to the world that is so utterly confused. We live in a confused world, chaotic. That when it comes to sex and romance, that Jesus is so real and so sufficient and so good, I can have him now and not be married and I have plenty in life. What a place to be. And so yes, we're gonna talk about dating over the next several weeks. We're gonna talk about who you should date and how you should date and when you should date. And we're gonna do some Q&A. And we're gonna, like, it's gonna be great. I'm really excited for it. But here's my, 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 my point tonight, is as a single young adult, you are okay. You're good. God's word teaches us over and over that you can have a full life just as you are, because why? You have Christ and you have a church family, and you have deep Christian friendship that you can lean into. Are we gonna do it perfectly? No, but we're gonna lean into it. And that in your singleness, you have the freedom and availability and the undivided heart to go serve and love and be that goodness of God to those around you. Instead of desperately grasping for some human being to somehow fill your needs and wants and desires because it's actually all about you. No. It's all about him and he is good and you can trust him in your season of singleness. You can trust him in your season of dating and you can trust him in engagement. You can trust him in marriage. You can trust him when your spouse dies before you do and you're single again and you're in your 60s or 70s. Guys, think about that. Having a good theology of singleness is not just for today. Because today you're single and young and energetic but there's probably gonna be a day where you are single, where I am single, where my wife is single again. And so to have a solid grasp on a biblical understanding of singleness is not just helpful for you today, it's helpful for you today, your friends today, and for you tomorrow and your friends tomorrow. Decades from now. So how to not waste your singleness? You embrace the goodness of singleness. You pursue healthy community and intimate friendships, and you keep your hope and your eyes focused on Christ. So what do we do with this tonight? Number one, I would encourage you, implore you to prioritize your relationship with Christ first. Make your relationship with God the number one relationship you are pursuing. With your time and your energy and your emotions, put it on your calendar. We went on our fall retreat just a couple weeks ago. And part of the program is we, we made time. And we said, hey, this is what we're doing. This, the program is you, your Bible, alone with questions. Go read. And at least everyone I've talked to, maybe people that hated it didn't tell me, but what I heard was, man, I needed this. I needed to actually be forced to sit down and spend time with my king. So before you go pursuing some person, go pursue the one who created that person. Don't worship the created, worship the creator. Let's not get it twisted. Prioritize your relationship with Christ first. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be given to you. Seek him first. Number two. Ask yourself this, how might you embrace your season for God's glory and the good of others? What would it look like for you to actually embrace this season of your life? Not for your fulfillment, not for your 
benefit, but for the glory of God to lift up his name for the good of those that are around you. What would that look like? To embrace the goodness of singleness. And number three, and this is a good question, maybe have over coffee with a friend. What is the narrative you are believing about dating and marriage that may need to change? What is that narrative? Maybe we said something tonight, we're like, man, I never thought about that, but yeah, that's me. Share that with somebody. Lean into that intimate friendship. Be known by someone who is trusted, that you know loves you and cares for you. And have a good, healthy wrestle match about the theology of your singleness. What do you believe? Why do you feel what you feel? What is it about this relationship that I just can't let it go? What am I believing? Because I said this at the beginning, and I'll say it again as I close, is that what you believe will determine your behavior. So what you believe about yourself, what you believe about God, and what you believe about this season of your life, what you believe about marriage will then determine your behavior today and tomorrow and next week. And so that's a good question to ask. What is the narrative that I'm believing that may need to change so that I can actually find a deep abiding joy and contentment in my relationship with God instead of finding it in some other person? We're gonna leave these up on the screen. If you're new, we just give you 120 seconds, two minutes to pray, to write these down, to ask. Maybe you're sitting by a friend. Maybe just have that conversation during our 120 seconds. Maybe just turn to them and say, hey, the narrative I think I believe more than anything is this. And then we're gonna finish the night with some prayer. Man, I'm really excited for this series, guys. I want you to date well and I want you to marry well. But more than anything, I just want you to know the joy of Christ. Everything else is cherry on top. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that can instruct us and inform us, that can sharpen us. God, thank you for the ways that you rebuke us and push back on us, that you love us enough to tell us hard things through your word and through your spirit and through your people. So God, as we go into this series about dating and marriage and relationships, Lord, would you just, Holy Spirit, would you be working in our hearts and in our minds that we might think differently, that we might think the way you think about one another, about the relationships that you call us to, that it may be pleasing to you and be good and glorifying to your name and for our benefit. In your son's name, amen.